Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. I'm Dr. Sandeep Kandar, a thoracic surgeon from Virginia Cancer Specialists, with a message about the importance of referring patients with resectable stage 1B through 3A non-small cell lung cancer to a medical oncologist consistent with national guidelines. I believe that all of these patients should be referred to a medical oncologist early in their treatment pathway. Using biopsy samples taken before or during surgery, medical oncologists should order guideline-recommended molecular testing to help inform therapy decisions. In my opinion, it is important to talk to these patients about recurrence rates after surgery, as well as molecular testing, which may impact treatment decisions for eligible patients. These conversations should happen either before surgery or shortly thereafter. Overall, a multidisciplinary team-based approach may help drive informed decisions so patients can receive the right treatment options for them. This content is sponsored by AstraZeneca. Welcome to a new episode of Same Surgeon, Different Life, brought to you by the Workforce and Diversity and Inclusion of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Today, we talk with Dr. Raja M. Flores. Dr. Flores is the chairman for the Department of Thoracic Surgery and the Stephen and Ann Ames Professor in Thoracic Surgery at the Mount Sinai Medical Center. Dr. Flores is a world leader in general thoracic surgery and especially known for his pioneering efforts in the treatment of mesothelioma. He is a son of New York City, being born and raised there. And we have really interesting discussion on healthcare, the challenges of individuals within our society of achieving equitable healthcare, and his decision to run for mayor of New York City. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to another edition of Same Surgeon, Different Life, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons Workforce for Diversity and Inclusion. Today, my guest is Dr. Raja Flores. Dr. Flores is the chairman for the Department of Thoracic Surgery and the Stephen and Ann Ames Professor in Thoracic Surgery at the Mount Sinai Medical Center. Dr. Flores is a world leader in general thoracic surgery and especially known for his pioneering efforts in the treatment of mesothelioma and has published widely on the subject and is a principal investigator in several disease-related clinical trials and funding grants. Of note, Dr. Flores is in this past election cycle, ran for mayor of New York City as an independent, where he described his candidacy as a son of New York City, a mayor for all people. His campaign site stated that he understands the barriers faced by people across the city because he has faced them himself. Raja, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, David. It's a privilege to be here. Now, uh, you know, Raja, um, you know, uh, was a thoracic surgery fellow at the Brigham and Women's Hospital when I was a fourth year medical student doing an elective rotation. So despite uh, your hazing of me, I I decided to go into the specialty. I always remember you wide eyed and starving for knowledge and it hasn't changed. You know, uh, you you were part of the cadre of surgeons who influenced me to, to enter CT surgery. Uh, we'll talk more about your passion, as you put it, in growing young students, high school, college, med students, and residents, and uh, faculty. And we'll get to that uh, a little bit later. But, you know, how is Mount Sinai doing in the current Omicron peak? So it, it's it's busy. Uh, you know, uh, thank God it's not like the peak back uh, when this first started. Um, but it is busy and the numbers are climbing. Um the death rate is not as high as it was before, and it's limited really to the patients who are unvaccinated. So uh, there is nothing new that we're finding out. We know that unvaccinated patients uh, do worse, and that's what we're seeing. You know, you know, what have been some of the challenges of complex thoracic surgical care, not just you know in this current peak, uh, but you know throughout the pandemic. I think the biggest problem during this pandemic has been the 
lower rate of diagnosis of lung cancers. And then when they do come to our uh, awareness that they are higher stage, so the outcomes are worse. So I think the biggest detriment uh, is that there's a greater death rate during the pandemic for cancers that uh, when patients see their doctors and get their scans and have their follow-up care, um, we can catch much of it earlier uh, and cure them. Now they're presenting later at an incurable stage. And I think that's the, one of the saddest aspects with regard to lung cancer during the pandemic. Now, has there been any sort of um, uh, efforts or uh, hacks that your group have done to try to mitigate these delays uh, during the pandemic, especially as we might get into sort of an endemic phase where we're living with this for such a long time? I think eventually as it becomes endemic, we have to maintain our vigilance of pushing screening, et cetera. I mean, even pre-pandemic, the number of patients in the United States who would get screened for lung cancer is less than 5% of those who are eligible. So we, it's not like we were doing a great job pre-pandemic. So I think we have to push that. Um, you know, there's so much focus on the new therapies, immunotherapy, chemotherapy, et cetera, uh, to improve survival in lung cancer when screening, catching it early and getting it out gives the biggest uh, bang for your buck with regard to survival and cure. And I think that's what we have to focus in on. Yeah. Now you're a department chair and uh, you lead a large team. Um, can you describe your team and what has been sort of your approach uh, given such the, the strain on the healthcare system and our healthcare workers and the stress and the anxiety of your team members? How, how have you led them through this? So it's been difficult and you have to take into account each attending specific circumstances. Um, you know, we have uh, altogether about 12 attendings covering different hospitals. And you have to take into account, does one of the attendings, do one of them have a sick child at home where they would be more predisposed to getting COVID and their child could die from it? Uh, that you know, those people should not be doing the tracheostomies, should not be doing the high-risk procedures. Um, they step in in other ways. And so you have to look at the strengths of your team and uh, their susceptibilities to this pandemic and adjust for it. You know, uh, I'm here every day. I haven't missed a day of work since this pandemic started. And and the roles change, you know, you may go from uh, having to redeploy people to having to send people to the ICU to having to step up and do tracheostomies and tubes and things like that. So um, you got to be able to be flexible during this pandemic. There's no task too big or too small that that we're not ready to take on as thoracic surgeons. Do you, do you check in to, to gauge their well-being and, and sort of their stress and anxiety level? Constantly, constantly. I, I'm always speaking to them. I uh, personally, one-on-one. -on -one, um, and I think you have to keep your finger on the pulse and uh, not just of your fellow attendings, but of the PAs, the MPs, the set, the assistants, the secretaries, uh, you know, I'm checking on the, the janitor, I'm checking on the x-ray technician. Uh, you know, I think there's a whole team there and just a little acknowledgement from someone in a leadership position really goes a long way. Uh, and I think morale is a very important thing to try and keep up during these trying times. And it doesn't take much to give somebody uh, positive feedback and, hey, listen, we're in the trenches together and, and we're going to get through this. You know, we've had some people who weren't as fortunate. Uh, we had my scrub tech died of COVID. My, uh, the guy in the cafeteria that used to give us food, Eddie, uh, he died of COVID. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've lost some people and, um, and you know, we get it. Um, but those who are here and who are doing okay, we know we are, our job is not just a job, it's a calling. And you, we have to show up and take care of, the people that, uh, that are here. You know, if, uh, if one spends a lot of time on social media, um, they see that it's very heliocentric in regards to the points of view of 
of our physicians, our surgeons, our folks taking care of patients, nurses, yet uh, we don't hear the voice and point of view from our other colleagues, our custodial staff, our people who work in the cafeteria who literally keep the lights on of the hospital that, that cares for our communities during this time. Yeah, I mean, the, the loneliest time to me is when a patient dies in, in the room. There's just one custodian that's going in there to clean it up in a room with a high viral load. And, you know, they're going in there to clean it up and there's a dead body there. And uh, it's it's heavy. It's heavy. And uh, and I think they want us to acknowledge that. Yeah. Hey, what you do is extremely important. And it is. Yeah, it makes me think that, you know, we talk about second victim counseling. If, if, if are we doing what we need to do for second victim, victim counseling for that work community? Now, you, you talk about, you know, keeping a finger in the pulse of your, fac of your faculty. Uh, one would say that you have an incredible finger on the pulse of the city of New York. You were born and raised in New York City. And tell me a little bit about your background. You're the, the second person I've interviewed on this podcast who was born and raised in New York City. Um, so, yeah, I was born and raised here. I, 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 uh, I've been here my whole life. I grew up with a single mom. We grew up poor. Uh, my dad left when I was six and uh, we're friends. Uh, you know, he, he didn't move too far away. And, um, you know, but it's a love hate thing. And uh, and my mom worked as a secretary. Um, and, you know, many of the kids I grew up with, uh, drugs, jail. Uh, and um, so I just feel very lucky that I've been able uh, to have a, uh, a charmed life, I guess. Uh, and, um, and it's just very hard for me to forget those roots, which was part of the reason why I embarked on this uh, mayoral campaign. It wasn't because I want to be a politician. Uh, it's because I've been seeing an injustice in my practice that I, I can't treat medically. It's not a medical issue. It's a societal political issue. And I just felt if I don't step out of my comfort zone and fight for what I think is right, then I wasn't doing my job. Uh, and basically in my practice, so for uh, 10 years earlier, I was at Sloan Kettering, which is a very different patient population. Then I came over here to Mount Sinai, which is located in East Harlem. Uh, there's a lot of public housing in East Harlem. It's actually the second largest area of public housing in the United States. And, um, and so I've seen a lot of the effects of poor conditions in public housing, like asbestos exposure, secondhand smoke. The biggest thing that gets to me is uh, fungus exposure uh, in their homes where I've had to perform lobectomies for aspergillomas in patients who otherwise would not have needed surgery. And I didn't start putting it together until about five, six years ago. I'm like, wow, this person lives in NYCHA, New York City Housing Authority, which is public housing. Wow, this person lives in NYCHA. And I started putting it together and I'm like, all right, we got to do a study on this. And then I did my research and I found out New York State had already done a study in 2018 where they found that 80% of people in public housing live with a severe health hazard. I'm like, wow, I don't need to study it. This is already known. But there's no political activity uh, or political policy that was put into effect to change anything. It's just gotten worse. And the main reason why I went as an independent is because I saw hypocrisy in the Democratic Party, which I was part of, um, where we had Democratic president, Democratic governor, Democrat mayor, and the conditions got worse. So it just was obvious to me, this is not a priority for any political party. Um, so I went as an independent and it was interesting. It was just eye-opening how you realize independents get shut out of the conversation. Uh, the media knows you, they see you, they hear you, but they silence you. And the way I put it together, they get $8 billion from the duopoly and they've got to, you know, pay the bills. And 
So that's sort of, I, I got to see behind the political curtain and it's not pretty. So, you know, it's, you bring up that you ran as an independent and uh, not as part of a major party. And one would call that perhaps a, a Don Quixote type effort. <laughs> you know, uh, why, why did you feel the need to run given the long odds? What, what, what was the end goal? So my primary purpose for running was not to win. I know you can't win as an independent without a political party backing you. I wanted to get the message out there so that this becomes a priority for either the Republican or the Democratic Party. It was more likely Democrat in New York City. Uh, and the thing that was so disappointing and disheartening for me is I could not get that message out. You figure you're a doctor, a lung doctor in the middle of COVID. Maybe they want to hear what you have to say, but they didn't. They shut you out completely. I even had an op-ed accepted for 9-11 in, in the Daily News, and they didn't even mention I was a mayoral candidate. They just said chairman of surgery at Mount Sinai. It's like they wanted to keep it as quiet as possible. When I went to go vote, I went to vote three days early and my name, uh, the woman pulled up my name and I said, does that name look familiar to you? She said, no. I said, can you bring that woman over here? So another woman came over, said, does that name look familiar to you? No. And I said, can you bring that guy over here? They brought a guy over there. No, that name doesn't look familiar to me. And it was clear to me. Nobody knew who I was. I could not get the message out. Not rah-rah Raja Flores, just look at the injustices here in public housing. We need to do something. No one wanted to hear that as well. There's more people affected in New York City public housing than Flint, Michi Michigan, yet you don't hear about it. And I just don't know how else to do my part. So I feel like I did it. I tried. I, I don't know what else to do. I'm going to keep banging my head to, to get the message out about these people who are suffering. And these are the same people who, when COVID hit, work at Mount Sinai. More than half the people working at Mount Sinai live in public housing in East Harlem. These were the janitors, the secretaries, the, 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 the x-ray techs. They were the ones who were getting affected by COVID, who had to come to work every day, and yet they're going back home to these horrible conditions. And that was part of the reason why I felt so strongly. And I tried other means before running. I'm on the community board of East Harlem. I'm on something called Community Voices Heard. I'm on a bunch of activist groups, and I wasn't able to affect any change that way. So I said, let me run. I could at least bring awareness. And it was so difficult. I couldn't get my message out. Now, it's interesting that your experience uh, at Mount Sinai uh, you know, led you to a, a sort of a nuanced understanding, also your personal background, but especially as a clinician, to a nuanced understanding of the risks of, of, of housing insecurity um, uh, in regards to lung health. You know, if you look at your platform, you know, one would describe your platform, you know, as you ran for mayor as progressive um, um, in, in, in many respects, uh, which would probably be unique amongst the average surgeon in politics. So if you say, if you looked at the current Senate, three of the four doctors in the U.S. Senate are surgeons, and that won't be described as progressive. Uh, there are seven surgeons in the current Congress, U.S. Congress, none can be described as progressive. Is this uh, a statistical anomaly? Um, is something about the, the surgery leads to certain points of view, or are there all points of view welcome within the house of surgery? I mean, I think I, I'd hate to label us a certain way. Um, you know, traditionally surgeons are more right and medical people are more left. Um, when I was growing up, I remember it was Gerald Ford running against Jimmy Carter. And I asked my mom, I said, Ma, are we Republicans or Democrats? She said, sweetie, we're poor. We're Democrats. I went, oh, OK. So I kind of just inherited that. And it was until I really started thinking policy-wise and how it affects people's health and their homes, where I said, the Democrats talk the talk, but they're not walking the walk. And it made me really realize the hypocrisy of politics. Once these Democrat candidates got into their positions of power, they did not use that power to help people who were less fortunate. Now, 
you can look at the Republican side as well. Um, and I do understand some of the Republican views as well. I don't like the misinformation that has been uh, propagated uh, about COVID and about vaccines that seem to me to be coming more from the right. Um, and so there's, but there are some things from the right that I actually do believe in, uh, you know, and so I don't feel like I fit either one anymore. Um, you know, like I said, I inherited it because my mom said we're poor, we're Democrats. And, but I don't see them fighting for the poor. I see them fighting for money for their political positions. And I, I'm, I'm not too happy with either party. <laughs> So, you know, let's go to alternate universe and you actually won as mayor. What about being a cardiothoracic surgeon can equip one to successfully lead a city or a city council or a school board or, or, or any elected position? Well, I think, you know, you, you look at politics. I don't even know if politicians feel it the way we feel it, but every decision they make is life and death. You know, you're, uh, passing something about public housing will lead to deaths, will lead to suffering unless you do it the right way. So we're used to making life and death decisions every day. We don't sleep at night because we're thinking about this patient or this patient or a difficult case or a complication. We have a lot of self-examination as well. When we get a complication, we are racking our brain to try and figure out, was this my fault? How could I have done this better to, to avoid this? And I don't think politicians nowadays have the same self-criticism that we have of ourselves. We have our M&M conferences where we are constantly trying to improve things and to make things better. Many politicians, they may make some poor decisions, pass some poor policy, and they don't suffer the consequences of their bad decisions, you know? Um, and so I do feel that physicians, especially surgeons, because our decisions are seen very quickly and manifested as life or death, we would be ideal in, in, in a political position. We're used to managing a big team. We're used to taking the hit, make a decision based on a limited amount of information and you're either right or you're wrong and you're accountable. And that's the biggest thing about politicians nowadays. Nobody's accountable. You know, for eight years in New York, Democrat mayor, Democrat governor, Democrat president, and we could not fix public housing. It has continued to deteriorate and it's manifested in the health of the people that we take care of every day here. And, uh, and it, it, we still haven't figured out how to fix it. I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful that this new mayor may do something, but here we are again, Democrat mayor, Democrat governor, Democrat president. I don't see anything happening. You, you mentioned that it's been you know several years of, of much of the same thing really challenges of growing up in a austere environment. You know, you grew up in, in that similar environment and went on to NYU, you know, a prestigious college. What enabled you, assisted you to make it to NYU? What, what, what did you have help? Did you, did you have someone who guided you along the way? What, what, allowed you not to become uh, a negative statistic? Honestly, I think it was luck. Um, the couple solid things, I had a mom who loved me. Never doubted that a day in my life. I had a mom who loved me. Um, but seeing around me where your choice was either to become a drug dealer, uh, which was glamorized, you know, they had the fancy cars, they had the gold, you know, that, that was glamorized. And, and then, you know, seeing what happens, many of them got killed, many of them ended up in jail. And it didn't take much to figure out, you go this route, you're going to end up going this way. And I was lucky in that I, I did well in school. Uh, I studied my mom, whenever I asked her for a book, it was there. I, I you know, we may have had trouble paying for other things, but she always had money for a book. And, um, and there were some programs before I got into NYU, 
uh, I got to go to a good high school. My grammar school wasn't great, but I had I got to go to a, a good high school uh, on a scholarship. It was called a higher achievement program. It was for inner city New York kids. And I got to go to a uh, good high school. And then I got a bum, uh, some bum advice as I was finishing high school where the counselor said, listen, you know, you're a screw up. You need to go to city college and, and that's it. And it's not like city college is bad. There have been some great people who've come through CCNY, uh, but he totally had zero faith in me and my abilities or anything. And I just so happened to be walking past NYU one day with a buddy of mine, Richie Lopez, who was like the only other guy that went to college. And he said, what about this thing? And next thing you know, I go into NYU, this admissions officers passed the deadline. I ended up filling out something right there, you know, just in person and submitted it. And that was it. I'm like, okay, fine. And it was just luck. I ended up getting into a program called the Higher Education Opportunity Program. And that program uh, paid for school, gave me stipend for books. And I just said to myself, my God, this is the easy route for me. You know, the drug dealer route, that's a hard route. <laughs> I said, this is easy. They're paying for school. I get to hang out with people and, you know, and, and see things that I, I, I hadn't seen and learn things. And it was a lot of luck. And what I would love to do is put things in place so kids that grow up the way I did, it's not luck, but it's by design that they can get, they can uh, find success. And it, it, it comes from just, you do, when you're good at something, you want to do it. Like a lot of the kids who I grew up with, a lot of them were good at sports, good at basketball or so. And when you're good at it, you want to do it. So somehow we've got to get these kids good at school. And it's way before pre-K. It starts at home before they're one years old, reading to your kid, uh, doing math with them. Uh, and I think, you know, we've got to teach parents how to teach kids because there's a pipeline issue going on with people getting into medicine, underrepresented people in medicine. There's a pipeline issue and it goes till they're under one year, one year of age. That's our pipeline issue. It's not pre-K or, or K, it's earlier on. And, uh, and that's what I've tried to focus in on. Uh, with teaching parents how to teach their kids. So how did you enter that pipeline to medicine? You went on to Albert Einstein. So what, what motivated you to go into medicine? You know, it was uh, my experience from being in the emergency room. I remember being in the emergency room for a bunch of different things, a broken nose, a cut eye, uh, tonsils. I had a hernia, but I was in the emergency room a good amount. And, and the thing that struck me when I was in there is that I'd watch the doctors interacting with the patients. And I saw how some doctors treated some patients like crap. You know, you could tell this person was looking at this patient in a certain way, uh, not really seeing who they were. Uh, they saw an external version of this person that fit their preconceived stereotype. Uh, and, and you could see it, it was clear as day. And then I saw other doctors who were just so good with patients, didn't matter who they were. They were just so good in realizing that this patient's scared and I'm gonna do something to make this patient feel comfortable. They showed them love, they showed them compassion. Uh, and it didn't matter whether you're a good doctor or not. That alone, I think, you know, shows that this person's gonna do what's in your best interest. Because when you care, you're going to study, you're going to practice. And if you don't understand what's going on with that patient, you're going to get somebody else that understands more than you do. So I do think caring as a physician is the number one thing. And that's what I saw when I was in the emergency rooms. And that's what made me want to be a doctor and a surgeon, because I, I, I've always been empathetic to a fault. You know, it, it's lucky that or, or maybe a, uh, not luck, but a, a, a testament of your character in what you decided to focus on as a child in the emergency room. You described two types of docs, one who was not empathetic with their patients and treated them in a negative way, um, but you didn't focus on that type of doctor. You focused on the doctor who was empathetic, who had who cared about the patient and why they were there and try to understand their perspective uh, whether it's frustration or 
desperation or, or fear uh, as they sat on that gurney uh, in the emergency room. Yeah, and I got to say, if I was never in the emergency room in that uh, sort of situation, I don't know if I would have become a doctor. Um, you know, kids will do what they are exposed to. And I think we have to make sure our kids are exposed to more. Um, you know, I was exposed to, you know, the drug dealer, the bodega guy, and the doctor in the emergency room. <laughs> I had to choose one of those three, <laughs> you know. Now, you, you, you I, I follow you on Twitter. And sometimes you, you mention the bodega cat. So I always, it was, <laughs> I, I always learn something about, uh, 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 New York microculture when I uh, see your <laughs> see your tweets. Um, so you went on to Columbia General Surgery. Why surgery? So in my mind, a doctor was always a surgeon, um, whether it was to fix my nose, suture my eye, take out my tonsils, fix my hernia. I didn't know a doctor could be anything else but a surgeon. I didn't know you could be a pediatrician, a psychiatrist. I always thought a doctor was a surgeon. Uh, and that's what I wanted to do. It was that simple. It wasn't really till I hit med school that I realized there were so many aspects of medicine, which were fascinating. And, um, um, you know, Columbia, um, you know, we'll talk about your time at the Brigham, um, these traditional Ivy League surgical environments. Was it a, a difficult transition for you going into these environments where, uh, a lot of tradition. Uh, you may have had classmates who, whose family names were on walls. Um, what was that transition like? It was interesting. Um, you know, you realize the culture where you come from may not fit into the culture where you're going. And it doesn't mean that you have to deny your identity. Um, through med school, I was pretty much, you know, bopping around and everything. When I started at Columbia during my internship year, I wasn't taken to so warmly. I, and it's not the people who were there, it was me. I, and my wife, uh, who back then was my girlfriend, had something to do with it. I, I still wore my gold chains. I used to have a big gold cross and a big St. Barbara. Uh, I used to wear my big high top sneakers. And, you know, and I still had a certain attitude that reflected the neighborhood, but didn't reflect, you know, my neighborhood where I grew up, but didn't reflect the environment in the hospital. When you're a patient and you look up at someone taking care of you, you want to just see doctor. You don't want to see their gold dangling down. You don't want to see their attitude. You just want to see doctor who's helping me. And my girlfriend back then, who ended up being my wife, pointed it out to me. And my first reaction was anger. I said, you don't understand this. You don't know where I'm coming from. And so my first reaction was combative. And then I put myself in a patient's position and I realized, wow, I'm going to have to look a certain way. I'm going to have to conform to a certain way of being to be a doctor, to make the patient feel comfortable. Um, and so I changed the way I came across and it's, you know, I, I wore my glasses more. I made sure I wasn't disheveled or, you know, it, it was a way of comporting myself uh, that was more professional. And it took someone who cared about me to point it out because no one else was telling me and it was painful. But you learn you've got to adapt, especially if you're coming from a different culture, a different environment. And more importantly, you got to realize how you come across to other people. Um, uh, you know, there's the way you feel that you come across and you've got to understand how other people perceive you. And uh, you got to have a high EQ if you're going to be a physician, uh, in my opinion. I think that's a sort of a, underappreciated conversation, um, especially for uh, people of color. So uh, we talk about that our institutions in our training programs have to create a, an, an inclusive 
environment um, where um, folks from different cultural backgrounds can feel accepted. Um, but we also have to understand that that medicine is a is a um, is a specific category, and and I could tell you that my parents, you know, African American, um, you know, they expect their doctor to to carry themselves in a certain way, not to not to erase culturally who they are, but you know their white coat should be clean, you know, maybe they shouldn't show up in scrubs in the outpatient clinic. Um, uh, it doesn't mean that you, you, you can't have cultural uh, identity, you know, you know, like I, I don't care if someone has a nose ring or, or a tattoo or, or whatever, uh, but there's a certain expectation of carrying yourself into this higher calling of a physician and, and I, in my opinion, a higher calling of a surgeon that is carried in a certain way. And that could be a difficult conversation. Yeah, and it, it also has to do with um, difference in culture, but also your own insecurity when you are coming up as uh, a, a doctor who's first generation to actually, you know, go to high school, finish, go to college, you, there is a certain insecurity you have where you feel you're not as good as the person next to you, where you feel like, you know, are they telling me to change this because they're trying to change who I am? And it's it's a battle to hang on to your identity, but you still want to move in a certain direction. And that false perception that I have to be this way can actually prevent you from moving forward. And I think when you conform after understanding the situation that you're in and you move forward, that will help you hold on to your past identity even stronger. And that will help you show others coming up what you need to do to make it. You have to, you have to speak the same in the same way. You have to, there's a way of communicating that is in medicine different than when you're hanging out on, on the street playing dominoes in front of the bodega. There's a different way of being. And I think that it's a hard thing to, to understand um, or to reconcile with. And, um, and I just thank God that my wife had pointed certain things out to me when she did that made me wake up. And that actually has made me more passionate about bringing up other students uh, who grew up in a similar way because I understand where they're coming from. I know their feelings and I can uh, advise them in ways so that they can excel without these identity uh, battles that they're fighting within themselves and, and help give them confidence, help use it as a strength as opposed to a weakness. And, you know, when you have a strong sense of self, you can change and do things uh, uh, in a better way. It's when you're insecure about who you are that you may be a little more obstinate to, to, to change who you are. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, one of the hidden secrets is that um, everyone has imposter syndrome. So uh, even the um, uh, the famous surgeon that that you say, well, no, no way they have doubts or or uh, or, or insecurities uh, have imposter syndrome, and that is not unique to people from uh, untraditional backgrounds in medicine. Yep, I agree. So uh, you went on to the Brigham uh, uh, for uh, cardiothoracic surgery fellowship. What? What motivated you to go into cardiothoracic surgery? So um, it was basically, I always found the anatomy of the chest interesting, but it was also what doors were open to me. Uh, I came from Columbia, which was a very cardiac heavy program, and I wasn't one of the chosen ones. Um, I... Uh, you know, there are certain groups in the residency program who were the star people. I wasn't one of them. 
And, um, and the doors had opened up in a way for me to end up at the Brigham in uh, thoracic surgery. I actually applied to cardiothoracic uh, in my fourth year and did not match. And many people find that, wait, wait, you didn't match? No, I did not match. And it was devastating. And I felt like, whoa, what the hell is going to happen to me now? And there was a spot at the Brigham that had opened up. And I went to interview for it and I didn't get that spot. Instead, I had a conversation with the two people who were there, Larry Cohn and David Sugarbaker. They said, listen, we, we like you. Why don't you come and do a, a year of research here and then we'll take you into the program. And that's how I ended up getting my spot at the Brigham. And what was interesting about it is that I didn't realize as I was applying uh, the year before that many of those spots were just set ahead of time. And I just was not part of that game, I guess, because I wasn't one of the chosen ones when I was at Columbia. Uh, I didn't realize that. And, um, and you know, it, as you're going through life, you may find the direction that you want to go in may not be open, but there are little detours that can help you get to where you want to go. And a patient told me this one time when we were talking about mesothelioma and she was trying to ask me, why did I go into mesothelioma? And I described to her the series of events that took place. She goes, oh, so it chose you. And it really resonated with me. I'm like, yes, I, it's not like I chose this path and this is the exact direction and the straight line. No, it was a jagged line and I made the most of what fell off the back of the truck. And that's how I ended up you know, where I am today. <laughs> so you are one of the, the leading experts in mesothelioma. Um, and you trained at a place where the leading expert in mesothelioma was for, for many years, Dr. David Sugarbaker. Is, is that how you developed such an interest in the disease? Basically, when I was at the Brigham, I uh, did a research project on uh, his set of 183 patients with meso and we got it published we presented it at the ats meeting and then when i started in new york at sloan kettering that my very first case as an attending was an extra pleural pneumonectomy that was my very first case and from that day on i just i started seeing a ton of meso um and so uh i had learned a lot during residency and then my practice sort of developed where I treated a ton of mesothelioma patients. And then eventually you do become an expert in it. So you, you mentioned Memorial, that was your first job outside of once upon graduation from fellowship. Uh, describe that environment and uh, entering that as, as faculty. So it was a great time back then. There weren't a lot of attendings. There were about four attendings. Uh, Valerie Roosh had just become uh, the chief of the service there. And, uh, and I had remembered her from a, an AETS meeting and I had emailed her and she said, why don't you come and talk? And so I went there and, uh, and the next thing I know, Larry Cohn, who was the cardiac guy at the Brigham calls her and says, Hey, this guy walks on water. You need to take him. And, um, and so Larry Cohn really, you know, is the one that, that opened that door. And then Valerie gave me my first job there. And I was just so excited uh, to have a job, let alone, you know, it was working at Sloan Kettering. And, and I stayed there for 10 years and it was a great experience. Uh, Val was a great mentor. And, um, and I made some uh, great colleagues there. But when I started, there was only four of us. So there were a lot of cases. I did a lot of operating at an early stage in my career. Uh, on top of the experience that I had at the Brigham, now I had this huge memorial experience. And so I, it, was, it was luck. Uh, I was in the right place at the right time. And, uh, and fortunately, I, I was able to grow and I appreciated it and I loved every minute of it. And then you went on to Mount Sinai as a leadership position. Why, why leadership? Why take on the responsibility and the buck stops here, you know, uh, uh, essence of being a department chair? So I, I came to Mount Sinai for two reasons. Number one, I did want the leadership role because I could help 
more people on a larger scale as opposed to just one patient at a time. Uh, I could grow people who in turn could help others. And that was part of the reason why I, I did the mayoral run is because I wanted to affect change on a greater scale. But the other and the more important reason why I left is because my whole time at Memorial, even though I was learning this amazing craft that we get to practice, this privilege that we have, I was treating a different demographic than what I grew up with. I was treating a more Upper East Side well-to-do type of demographic. And now I had this opportunity for a leadership role uh, in, in Spanish Harlem. And I said, you know what, this is something that it was a calling. I felt like I had to do this and I had to reconnect with my roots. And so, um, so to me, that was a big part. And, you know, and it was me being immersed in an, in an environment that I was very familiar with that made me see the issues with housing and how that affected health. And I see exactly what we need to do to improve things. I'm just having a hard time getting it done. Uh, but it was those two things, the leadership role, but also uh, even though Mount Sinai is located in between the richest of the rich and the Upper East Side, but also the poorest and the poor in East Harlem. And so it, it, it allowed me to, to, to still um, see the cases that I was seeing at Memorial, but a whole lot more and to treat a demographic that I felt a connection with and a, uh, uh, a loyalty to that uh, I owed something uh, and I still do to that demographic. You know, in that vein, you mentioned that your greatest achievement uh, or one of your greatest achievements, your ability to mentor and guide the younger cohorts. How have you been able to do this in your role at Mount Sinai? So it's interesting. I mean, they, they basically find, um, you know, I'm in my office and, you know, you have students coming in left and right uh, who would like to meet, like to shadow you, like to follow you in the OR. And I listen to them and they all have their unique stories. Um, uh, many are black and Hispanic, uh, but uh, they're uh, Greek and Italian and Irish. It's everybody and Jewish. And, you know, my door is open to everybody. And, and I think that they feel comfortable in, in opening up to me. And I think they, um, they sense that I'm not judging them. And I think that's the main thing with the student. You can just uh, uh, sort of grade them based on enthusiasm and drive. And, uh, you know, they know I'm not judging them intellectually or putting them on the spot with this or that. And I've developed some strong bonds with them. I mean, my mayoral campaign was run by four students, four med students. Um, and, you know, I had just mentioned it to one of them. And next thing I know, he's getting other people on board and they're doing this and they're doing the reason I was on the ballot uh, in New York, in the New York City mayoral race was because of these med students. Uh, they wouldn't let me stop running. <laughs> and um, and, you know, when you have smart kids like that. Um, from all different backgrounds that uh, turn to you for advice and for guidance and stuff, it makes you think, hey, maybe I'm okay if these smart kids are actually listening to what I have to say. And, uh, and I've developed such bonds with, with them that, um, you know, their success is my success. You know, it's, it's extremely important for, to get the best and the brightest from all different backgrounds um, uh, into our specialty to advance it and evolve it to benefit our, our patients. And you know, one thing that they'll, they'll ask is, where's cardiothoracic surgery going? What is the future? What do you see as the future of cardiothoracic surgery? Is it, is it exciting is it, or is it not? Where is it going from your perspective? I think it's about to open up wide. I think, and I'm talking from the thoracic standpoint, from the cardiac standpoint, there's a lot of minimally invasive stuff and TAVRs and stuff like that. I think there's going to be more interventional, just like vascular surgery uh, with wires and stuff like that for cardiac. But for thoracic, when you add the immunotherapy, the early detection, uh, 
all of that, I think it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to explode. When you think about lung cancer screening, that only less than 5% of those eligible are getting screened, that's 95% of people that really need uh, intervention that we're missing. We just published a paper in JAMA where uh, we looked at over 300,000 patients, and right now, there are 20 times more patients diagnosed with tumors greater than five centimeters than one centimeter. That's a lot of room for improvement. So when we looked at that whole huge number, greater than five centimeter tumors presented 20 times greater than those that were one centimeter. I mean, if we find those things early, think of all the cures that we can have. So then you add on to that immunotherapy, targeted therapy, all these other therapies. I think we're going to need a lot more thoracic surgeons as our, our, our patients expand. Yeah, I, I would, you know, definitely uh, echo that with the, all these FDA approvals coming out rapidly for early stage disease as adjuvant therapy. And then we'll see things for new adjuvant therapy for early stage disease and lung cancer as well. And then as you have demonstrated a, a thoracic surgeon isn't just a person standing in the operating room operating, but really becoming integral with their community, looking at the, the social determinants of health, population health, and really restoring the health of, of the community in multiple different ways. Well, thank you, Dr. Flores, a son of New York City uh, <laughs> and a Mises, international mesothelioma expert I really appreciated reconnecting you with you today uh, and um, exploring your insights on same surgeon, different light. And thank you very much. And thank you, David, for having me. You're a credit to our specialty. And uh, it just warms my heart seeing your trajectory uh, since I know you and you're a little medical student. And uh, it's just incredible to see where, how far you've come and how you're taking other people under your wing and growing that program there. So God bless you. Good, strong work, Dave. Great. Hey, stay safe and, and thank you very much. All right. Thank you. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Life a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.